as we bring our attention and our focus uh, back here together. We're going to be studying, as Lindsay said, from Hosea, but also looking at how that is reflected in Paul's letters to the Philippians later. And so our call to worship this morning comes from Paul's letters to Paul's letter to Philippians. I'm going to read the first slide, first slide as we do this, and then we'll read the following two slides together in unison. And we do this as a way of recentering, of bringing our awareness, our presence back here, and also declaring our willingness to receive the word of the Lord, to receive what God has for us this morning in that. We know that that requires our attention, our focus, our ability. So let's, let's come together to do that. If you'd stand with me. And like I said, I'll read the first one, and then we'll read the following two together. Grace Church, we should have the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So I just got back late last night from a trip to Mexico. Jane and I uh, were down there. Jane was leading the, the house build. We built a, a house for a single father and his, his disabled son. They had been living in a van for a number of years, and, and we were able to build them a small house that accommodated the wheelchair. It was one of the we had to make a few architectural changes to accommodate it, but it was really a profound experience. And it often happens, we've done this enough, where we go down and you, and you have this, and it was a new church that we were building with. It was a church from Southern California that came down and built. And the responses were very emotional at the end, and, and everyone saying how much their lives had changed and how this was going to change everything. And this experience of engaging with these people and in this place and in this way was going to change everything. Um, yeah. So here's the deal. It often doesn't. And listen, this is, uh, this is what I do. I mean, I, this is what Jane and I do. We raise support. We go down. We build houses. We do this. We believe in this ministry. And one of the reasons why we believe in the ministry is because of the ongoing effect, not only that it makes for the people we minister to, but to the people who come and do the ministry. But we have also done this long enough to know that good intentions aren't enough. That all of us are prone to mistake a, an emotional experience in the moment as the same thing as making a long-term substantial change. Listen, if it were true that a short-term mission trip would change a person's entire life, the world would be a very different place. Right? 
And, and I'm not saying this to bring shame. I'm not saying this to bring guilt. I'm not doing that. Look, I'm, I'm the chief one. I'm the chief one who goes, who, who has an experience, who says something and says, oh my gosh, man, I'm never going to, or I'll always do this from now on. Like you have that thing that happens and you're like, yeah, I'm in, we're going to do it. And then two months later, how about them cowboys? <laughs> you know, it's just back to the same old, same old with that. As we look at the scripture today, I think what we're going to see is the profound love of God, how God is so unlike us in that. But for the, here, here's what I want to say, is that for it to really sink in on how profound this promise of God's unending love is, we have to contrast it with the fickleness of our own love. We have to contrast it with the limitedness of our own affections. We have to contrast that with the way that our own experience of our love being contingent, fickle, and limited is unlike God's. So, let's dig in to our text this morning and see what we see. The context, as we've been going through the narrative lectionary, we come to this verse in Hosea. We're also looking at this in the season and time in our church where we're experiencing a season of growth in our leadership, of examining uh, where are we going to go the next season, who's going to lead us in that. And so this is, this is essential for us to understand as we do it. God has given his word, given us creation, people demanded a king, they demanded that they be ruled and that they rule each other in the ways of man. God acquiesced, we've studied. God acquiesced to this as a way of further teaching us, his creation, that God is indeed the only king who is capable, who is worthy of our love, of our affection. But the people, like all people, like us people, need a constant repetition of the lesson. And so Hosea, he sends Hosea, the prophet, to bring these things out, to declare these things. And so we look at the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Hosea's heart is broken as he declares this, but he's declaring it in truth towards the northern kingdom. He says, when Israel was a young man, I loved him like a son, and I summoned my son out of Egypt. But the more I summoned them, the further they departed from me. They sacrificed to the Baal idols and burned incense images. Tim did such a great job last week about how deep that idolatry was. Yet it was I who led Ephraim. I took, him, I took them by the arm, but they did not acknowledge that I had healed them. I led them with leather cords and leather ropes. This is, that's, that may sound like, like dragging something or here, but it's actually a sign of mercy. It's not a, it's not a chain. It's not a rough thing. It's a, it's a gentle way of leading. I led them with leather cords and leather ropes. I lifted the yoke from their neck and gently fed them. And they will return to Egypt. 
Assyria will rule over them because they refuse to repent. A sword will flash in their cities. It will destroy the bars of their city gates. It will devour them in their fortresses. My people are obsessed in turning away from me. They call out to Baal, but he will never exalt them. And then here, the pathos of the heart of God towards his people explodes from the prophet. How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Those are two of the cities that were near Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed in the fire. I have had a change of heart. All my tender compassions are aroused. I cannot carry out my fierce anger. I cannot totally destroy Ephraim because I am God and not a man. The Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. I forgot who it was who said, uh, someone here will know, but the quote, God created man in his image and man returned the favor. We can be sure that we have created, another quote, we can be sure we have created God in our own image when he hates the same people that we hate. It is so easy for us to make God in our own image. And God is constantly seeking to differentiate God's self from that image, that man-made image, that idolatrous image, that image that where love is contingent, is fickle, is limited. If there is anything that makes God God, it is this love. It is this refusal to pour out wrath. It is this refusal to act in anger. It is this refusal to take offense. And yet those qualities right there that I just named are basically what make us human, right? I act in anger. I am quick to take offense. My love is contingent. I want to earn things. And by God, when I earn them, I want recognition for having earned them. And I project that onto God constantly. And I expect God to treat me in the same way with that. And yet here we see this declaration of love that changes everything. The longer I live, the more I am convinced that the single most difficult thing for a human being to do is to allow ourselves to be loved the way that God chooses to love us. The single most difficult thing for a human being to do is to allow ourselves to be loved the way that God chooses to love us.
Because God's love is not based on any of the values we judge ourselves by. It's not based on beauty or accomplishment or potential or ability to give back. It's not based on talent. None of those things. All of those things we use to judge ourselves by, all of those things we use to rank ourselves by, starting in preschool, when we start to rank, who's going to sit at this table? Who am I going to invite to my birthday party? Who gets in? Who gets out? Right? We're constantly seeking to rank to order. The corporate world is no different than the preschool play yard. Who's the smartest? Who's the prettiest? Who's the fastest? Who's the strongest? They get to go to the top. Everybody else has to follow. And our affections are formed by this. It can't, they can't help but not be formed by this. And when that comes into, when that comes into to interface with the love of God, we don't know what to do with it. We literally don't know what to do with that kind of love that says, all of that, yeah, so what? Doesn't matter. The father and son that we built with, built a home for this last week, Edgar Sr. and Edgar Jr., the son has cerebral palsy, 18 years old. He'll never walk. He'll never hold a job. Picked up a paintbrush with his hands added to the paint on the side of the house. <laughs> we are so conditioned to push away the love of God and demand that God love us the way that we want to be loved. Because of our talent, because of our strengths, because of what we can give back to God. It is offensive to us to receive that love when we know we don't deserve it. The love of God offends us because we know we don't deserve it. We haven't done anything to earn it, and we can never do anything to pay it back. God loves us because God is love and chooses to love us. This is what sets the standard and breaks every idol, delivers every captive, destroys every oppressor, heals and restores and redeems and revives God's coming as a person in Jesus is not humiliating for God, but for us. God's humble coming as a person exposes our utter inability to accomplish anything apart from God. It shows that our standards, values, estimations, accomplishments for what they are, futile, toxic, dysfunctional. 
This is where we are healed. This is where we are ultimately set free, is when we receive and allow God to love us as God chooses to love us. But what does this mean for us as a church? In this season, we're asking these questions. We're looking forward. We're, we're, we're saying, okay, how are we going to form ourselves and for the next season of growth for Grace Church? What do we do? Well, Paul seems to think that that changes everything about that. Because, you see, when we start asking these questions and start talking to people and start looking at this, our mind, again, automatically defaults to the standards of the world. Who's the strongest? Smartest? Most talented? Most gifted? Let's put them in charge. The same way that we value love, we're going to do that in everything, right? That's what we do. And yet Paul, and I think God, will have none of it. And so he writes this to the church in Philippi. And again, our imagination around these letters, our imagination around Paul's letters to the church, have to be rooted in the context of what it was. These, there is a radical change going on. There is a revolution in everything. God has broken into history, become incarnate. People are responding, and people are organizing and coming together in ways that have never happened before in human history. People from different races, men and women together, people of different abilities, those who were outcasts, those who were in, the powerful and the slaves are all being called to worship the same God in the same place in the same way. That just didn't happen. And it must have been really tense at times. But this is what was happening. And so Paul writes this letter. And he writes these words. And I don't have them on the slide. I just want, even if you close your eyes, I just want you to listen to them. As if they were to us. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in Spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourselves. Each of you should be concerned not only for your own interest, but for the interest of others as well. You should have the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had. And then it goes into this section, which was a hymn that the early church would sing. If you read it in your Bibles, in Philippians 2, you'll see it. It's often set off in a different type. It's, it's, Paul is sampling. Donnie did a sermon a long time ago that was excellent when he talked about how Scripture often is sampled, like, like they do in music with this, or cut and paste. So this was brought in. And so, so they would sing it, and I'm not going to sing it for you because that would be distracting, but, but they would do it. Be, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. That's actually chanted, not sung. But, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. By looking like other men, by sharing in human nature, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
Even death on a cross. This is our confession. This is our call to worship that we all said together. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. He goes on to say, so then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. If anything is going to create awe and reverence of it in us, it is the love of God. It is the unconditional, unending, inexhaustible, unconditional love of God. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of good pleasure is God. Now that, and, and, and that is the stuff of poet, that's the stuff of musicians, that's the stuff of art. It is the soaring experience that we have when we encounter God, but it is always intertwined and brought down to the practical. Christianity, if nothing else, gives us ways to be in the world as the world is. It does not call us to live in, off separately, but empowers us to be salt and light in the world where we are. So he goes on, he says, hey, so do everything without grumbling and plaining. Do it without arguing. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God, without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world by holding on to the word of life so that on the day Christ, day of Christ I will have reason to boast that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering for the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice altogether with you. And in the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice together with me. The only way to be able to make that statement is to have the promise that was given in Hosea ringing in the back of your head. Because I am God, not a man, the Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. I cannot give up on you. I will not quit you. I cannot give up on you. I will not quit you. You are loved. I love you. I am God. I am not a man. You are loved. It doesn't depend. It's not contingent. It's not it's not febile. It's not limited. It's not exhaustible. I am God. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. If we don't have that foundation, nothing else works. If we don't have that foundation, this letter to Philippians, everything that, asked, that Paul asked of the church, it's meaningless. Even worse, it's deceptive. It's leading us to believe and giving us instructions to do something that we have no capacity to fulfill. But Paul believes that it can be, based on what is given here. You see, Paul, N.T. Wright says this, he says, Paul saw the church as microcosmos, microcosms. That, that word is literally tiny cosmoses. A little world, not simply an alternative to the present one, or an escapist country cottage for those tired of city life, but as the prototype of what was to come, when the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory is justice, peace, and joy. Paul sees each church 
as a sign of that future reality. We come to this church to be a living hermeneutic, an explanation of what God's kingdom looks like by the way we relate to each other and relate to the world. And if we are doing that with the same principles, the same valuations, the same understanding that the world used, then why? What difference does it make? Just to be better at it? We're not. We're not. And thank God we can't be. And what's crazy is, like, the church is not like McDonald's. We're not franchising units for some corporate giant. And it's also not a boutique startup where we're kind of gentrifying the morally ambiguous neighborhood. No, we are this living hermeneutic of the gospel. We are the practiced experience of the kingdom of God in this place right now. On November 10th, 2019, Northwest Arkansas, we are living the gospel. That is what we're called to do is to demonstrate that. There was a theologian in missionary, Leslie Newbigin, and every time I teach the Perspectives Lesson 3, I, I highlight this particular quote from the reader that the Perspectives readers has. It says, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic, the only way, means of interpreting that, means of interpreting the gospel, is a congregation of women and men who believe it and live by it. We can preach all day long, y'all. We can come up with doctrinal statements and theological stuff. We can come up with rules. We can come up with structures. If we don't live it, it doesn't mean anything. That's where it's going to come. So as we make these decisions, as we move through this next section, this new season of life, I hope that this Sunday, I hope that this week, we can let the words of Hosea, the prophet, seep into us. And not just in a devotional way to make us feel good, Get a, little, get a little encouragement and go back to the way we live. But to see that that transforms everything about the way we live. Transforms everything about the way we live. Transforms everything about the way we love each other. About the way we love ourselves. Y'all, we haven't got time. I mean, we have not even got time to talk about how this transforms the way we think about ourselves. That when we understand that that's how God feels towards us and then we compare that to how I feel about myself, what I look like, what I can perform, what I can earn, man, what else, what else can do that but this love of God? What does it take for us to be this living hermeneutic? 
to be what Eugene Peterson calls a colony of life in a country of death. Is it not the promise of God's unending love? The promise that we don't have to be bound by our own understanding, our own devices, our own abilities. The promises that God will never, ever, 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 ever give up on us. Once we understand this, there is nothing we cannot endure or overcome. And if we don't understand it, there is nothing that we won't mess up. It really isn't rocket science, y'all. The instruction is clear. Pick up our crosses, seek to love as Jesus showed us, as God the Holy Spirit empowers us, and love in response to the relentless love the Father has showered upon us. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we respond to this message, right? Because, hey, look, it's just me saying it right now. Doesn't make it true just because I have a microphone on. And honestly, I got to tell you, I'm still trying to believe it myself. I'll probably spend the rest of my life trying to believe it. Because I'm not lying when I say it. The, hard, the single hardest thing to do, I think, for a human being is to allow yourself to be loved. Allow yourself to be loved the way Jesus loves you. But we practice that. We practice that in the way we treat each other. We practice that in the way we treat each other. We also practice it by coming to this table. Jesus knew we needed reminding. Jesus knew we needed reminding. He knew we weren't going to get it. It wasn't going to be one and done. It wasn't going to be a short-term mission trip and then turn around and everything's done. It wasn't going to be one sermon on a Sunday morning and then turn around and everything's done. No. No, we have to practice this. That's why we practice church. That's why we practice communion. That's why we sing these songs time and again. That's why we come and receive. That's why we share our resources among each other. But we can get it, y'all. We can do it. Not because we're capable or talented or particularly smart, but because God will not give up. God simply will not relent so we can walk in that promise.